Hi, today we're here with Allison Sitch, Vice President, Public Relations of the Americas for Marriott International. Allison is one of the most admired and respected names in the travel and public relations industries, having spent nearly two decades with the Ritz-Carlton and now with Marriott International. Allison sits at the forefront of what is arguably the most influential travel organization in the world. We'll talk to Allison about her career, predictions for the future of travel, and what she sees as some of the most pivotal moments of her career. Let's dive in. Hello, this is Sarah Evans with J Public Relations, and we're here with Allison Sitch, Vice President, Public Relations, the Americas for Marriott International. Welcome, Allison. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. I have known Allison in many iterations over both of our public relations careers over the years, and we've watched this crazy industry PNPR and travel change together. So we're going to be here with her today talking a little bit about her path in PR with Ritz-Carlton and now Marriott and really where the industry is going and some tips Allison's going to give us on her view from the inside. So welcome, Allison. We're so happy to have you. I am thrilled to be here and I love that really our PR careers brought us together, but it's our passion for travel that really keeps us connected. And so thrilled to be talking to you about the subject I love the most. Agreed. Agreed. So you were with Ritz-Carlton for 17 years, and as we all know, Ritz-Carlton is one of the foremost brands in luxury travel. Two decades ago, the travel industry was different. How was it working for one of the most iconic luxury hotel brands almost 20 years ago? Mm. And what did you see change through your time there? The footprint was the biggest thing, I would say. So when I joined the Ritz-Carlton, I think we had 30 hotels worldwide. Today, it's 100. So definitely growth there, a lot outside of the United States. And I joined the brand based in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. And so that was really at the cusp of international expansion for this American luxury icon. So that in itself was an exciting venture to take uh, the U.S., icon into other territories across the Middle East, across Asia was my remit. Very exciting. But I think the biggest change was the way that the hotels were built and run. And so they were generally all very consistent. One might almost say cookie cutter in the way that they looked and they felt. They all had dark wood and heavy velvet curtains and white glove service, everything that you would remember from formal luxury 20 years ago might sound a long time to some people in the audience, but really not that long ago when you think about the changes that we've seen. So that for me was a big shift that we've seen now, this evolution of of how hotels are built and run and how guests are served. So the things that have not changed are the focus and commitment to service excellence. And I think the brand was always committed to really making everyone feel welcome and serving them in the best possible way and still committed to that today. So, Was the Ritz-Carlton one of the first luxury brands in Dubai? 
It was one of the early ones. Yeah, I'm trying to remember now. There was not an awful lot in what was just a desert in 1998. I was, when I was going to opened. say, it must have been so interesting. <laughs> to You were also working in Dubai mm. at a time of, you know, really yeah. Dubai was... Oh, becoming it, Dubai. It was all desert. Actually, if anyone who's been to Dubai, the beach area there, the Jumeirah Beach area, really was a barren stretch of white sand and blue water with one hotel on it somewhere in the middle of nowhere. And that was not the Ritz-Carlton at the time. And that hotel was since imploded and is the site of where the Burj Al Arab now stands. So even the things that were there back in the day are not there anymore. But yes, it was a very, very different place. We were early entries, that's for sure. What made a hotel, a luxury hotel, a household name back then. You were working in PR. Mm. How did you work on the inside to make the Ritz-Carlton a household name? Yeah, I think a lot of the word association work had been done for me. In fact, it was really done in the 1800s by Caesar Ritz. And that is uh, the Caesar Ritz Foundation of Excellence and Focus on Hospitality really was a platform from which the Ritz-Carlton was built. If you go back in history books and look at those incredible black tie top hat dinners uh, that used to happen in Paris and in London you know, in the era of uh, Caesar Ritz and Escoffier, you know, that was the platform from which we've continued to build excellence. Would so, you talk about those internal staff meetings or in a morning lineup? Would you talk about those things? How did you bring that rich history into what was a formal mm. brand at the time, probably 20 um, years ago. We touched on it a little bit in discussions. And for those who know the Ritz-Carlton, you know, we do have a history and a tradition of meeting every single day, every employee, every lady or gentleman that works for the brand meets and discusses, uh, not necessarily the operational things that are going on, but the commitment to excellence and what it really means to run a quality establishment and what it really means to look after a guest. I think those things poured through and some discussion around Cesar Ritz and Escoffier, but very little, more conceptual, more philosophical in terms of what it really means to serve very well and what people expect when they're buying into luxury, which of course is very different today. That's what I was going... So when people were buying into luxury 20 years ago and before, but we've all seen the world change before our eyes and and the way people are traveling. What do you see the main difference being people buying into luxury? What are they looking for today that, that was different when you started out? Yeah. If you think about even the category of business travel years ago, a decade or two ago, business travelers generally wanted to go stay in a hotel that was functional for a business travel visit. Um, they wanted a decent size room and things that worked and were compatible with a life that they were 
were trying to live a quiet space, have meetings, you know, do phone calls. Today, a business traveler is blending the leisure component far more. And so the experience of doing business is so very different. You know, the very fact that we're all doing business pretty much all the time on our phones is is one indicator that really having that formal desk in your room, you know, may or may not be appropriate. And so I think when you look at hotel design broadly, yes, in the category of luxury, but more broadly than that across many brands, you've started to see different spaces being created in hotel rooms now in which to do work or in public spaces of hotels, you know, communal areas, uh, quiet sound booths, things that you see in offices, you're also seeing in hotels. So that's one piece. We definitely saw the shift in design away from cookie cutter to consistently inconsistent, actually, where no two hotels would design the same because that truly wouldn't be indicative of a look and feel of a destination, pulling that local flavor through. And then that pulled through into every aspect of the hotel. So if you think about menus and what people were eating and drinking 10, 20 years ago, they were sitting in a formal dining room, essentially eating often fine French food. And now you can go into a Ritz-Carlton and other luxury establishments and really feel the vibe of the location that you're in. You're going to feel the local flavors, be served by local people. It's a very, very different feel today. Even in a luxury hotel, you can still do things exceptionally well without being formal. Mm-hmm. You're a traveler, personally and professionally. You travel a lot. What are some of the things, you know, you were talking about the desks in the room, or what are some of your favorite features in hotel rooms? What are you mm. looking for? Ooh, that's a good question. Well, I actually always go straight away. I grab the laundry bag. So this is, I haven't even thought about this until you asked me right this moment uh, from the room, because when I travel, I absolutely cannot wait to get into my room and change and shower and totally freshen up. There's something great about that feeling. So one of the first things I grab actually is the laundry bag. Then I often plug in my little steamer and... <laughs> so do you pack a steamer with you? I do. I have a little travel one and I wouldn't live without it. So. Yeah. So that's um a, I know. Who knew? What no, you have to tell us what is the travel steamer because that would you know the brand of it? Oh, I don't. No. Actually it was a gift to me. I can't it's the cutest I'm, little white thing. I'm curious because it sounds that sounds like a cumbersome piece to travel with. Oh, it's tiny. It? But it's a tiny mm, one. Packs into a little bag. It's very convenient. So we'll have to follow up on, yeah. on that. That said, if you are staying in a Ritz Carlton, that's something they'll take care of for you. <laughs> So you started in hotel operations, correct, before you were in public relations? Did. And you've lived around the world, Dubai. Where else have you lived? Mm, um, well, across Where? the Arabian Gulf in the different states. So uh, usually I went to live anywhere I was opening a Ritz-Carlton. So Oman, Muscat. I lived in Bahrain, in Doha, Qatar, Cairo and Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. So around the region. And then when we branched out into Asia, I spent a good part of time living in Hong Kong, Beijing, Shanghai, Tianjin, Guangzhou. So several places, but it, anything from six months to a year and a half, depending on wow. how long we were taking to open the property. 
What's your favorite place that you've lived? Wow. I got to tell you where I live right now is high up on the list. Uh, I live in Alexandria, Virginia, which I think is absolutely beautiful. I'm very happy there. I've been happy anywhere. I think people always give you a sense of home. I think I like where I am now because that's where my family Mm -hmm. is now. But uh, all the years I was traveling alone, I was blessed with good friends from all over the world. And I think that's really the connector. When you look at where you were happy and where you weren't, it's often to do with the people and the relationships that you had. Absolutely. That's so interesting. And to be living in those places at a different time for those places too. I mean, those places have modernized so much, I'm sure, in the past 20 years. Very much, yes. And when I first moved to Dubai, actually, I lived in a a very Arabic community in very early days in 1992, which was unusual, you know, for someone from Europe. But the friendships I forged there were quite incredible. You know, I learned how to navigate around that region through the relationships I developed with my neighbors and other ladies in the community. And so... Were your neighbors typically expats or... No, Actually, not until, I mean, when I first moved there, really, there were very few expats, maybe 3,000. Now, I don't know, a million, perhaps. Um, I really don't know how many now, a, a huge number, which I consider was wonderful for me because I got to learn about the culture and hospitality is really at its richest and deepest in Arabia and also across Asia. Um, Many people probably listening have had experiences staying in hotels across Asia and the Middle East and and will know exactly what I'm talking about. It's very true to their own cultures to welcome people in, to extend a welcome and make people feel at home. That's so true. And I'm sure it's really lent to your career here and bringing Mm. so much of that to what you're doing, you know, what you've done with the Marriott organization from Ritz-Carlton to now because you're, you've worked in such a global sphere this whole time. So you've, you've had these travels, you've lived in these different places. Can you pinpoint any time in this rich career that you've had that really were defining moments for you? I can definitely pinpoint a couple. The first one was actually before I traveled anywhere. And it was as soon as I had finished college and I went to work at a Michelin star restaurant in England. And I had, my career was going to be in food and beverage service. That's what I thought I wanted to do. And I had written all through my college tenure to this restaurant to say, please give me a job. My aspiration then was just to work in this restaurant in in the front of house. And um, I didn't get any response until I was about to graduate. And the college that I was at was known to graduate at a certain time. And I heard from them to say, listen, if you're interested, you need to come and work in the kitchen for six months first. And then when you have been able to observe the operation, for that period of time will allow you to have a job to go and clear the tables in the restaurant. And so I did that. And for six months, I was given the largest piece of cheese to grate. And I would spend all day grating that cheese. And at the end of the shift, five minutes before, someone would come and pick up 
90% of the cheese that was left that hadn't been grated and throw it into a machine. And it was grated in five minutes. And it was really a test of my will to see if I would stay the course for the six months. Were you working for Gordon Ramsay? I was not. No, I was working (laughs) for a notable chef, but he wasn't the one. And honestly, it was an amazing education for me because I was watching every day how that kitchen worked, the relationship between the kitchen and the restaurant. And at the six month mark, I got my job in the restaurant and had earned the respect of the kitchen. And every time they needed to speak to someone, it was me that they asked for, junior me. That same chef ended up producing job opportunities for me and my first opportunity to go to Dubai, actually. And so genuinely, I tell people, if I hadn't stayed the course to great cheese for six months, I would not be sitting here today. Wow! I don't know where I would be, but it would not be in this role. And so that was, now I think about it, a pivotal moment. So how do you have daughters? Mm. How does that translate to advice you would give them today? Because I'm sure they look up to you and and this really amazing career that you've had. And and I'm sure they've heard similar stories about you staying the course and grading the cheese. How does that translate to what you would tell them to do? Um, I think as parents, we always like to say there are direct analogies. I think they probably learned from me as a female that I have tenacity, that, you know, it it is great to seize the opportunities that you've been given to go to college, to have a good education, to have opportunities to travel and, and do these things. But it really comes down to what you as an individual are prepared to do to propel yourself forward, to be happy. I don't think the mark of happiness passing you know, legacies on to children is about success and career growth. It's about exploration, Mm -hmm. finding who you are, finding the opportunities that suit you the best. But more than anything, being able to say yes, what's the question? You know, being that brave, trying something that perhaps you hadn't considered as the opportunity, which really brings me to like that second pivotal moment was when I was in Dubai and I was working as an assistant director of food and beverage. And it was the tail end of the Gulf War. And sadly, business wasn't terrific. And the general manager I had at the time said to me, Alison, we need to eliminate your position because business isn't there. But I'm going to park you in a position for a year. I'm confident that in that year, business will come back and I can put you back into the food and beverage operation. And I said, well, where are you going to park me? And he said, I have a job in public relations. And I was mortified. I literally cried. I just thought, wow, what must he think of me? (laughs) He's going to put me in a PR job because I think that still today, the perception of public relations and what it can do, even for me back then, was a fluffy one. It wasn't strategic. It wasn't a department that I saw strategically supporting business objectives, which was a big focus for me. Uh, But 
I did do it. He did park me there and the rest is history. I mean, I I never went back to the operation. I found my sweet spot. He saw something in me that I had not seen in myself. And had I not have said yes and not explored something very different and learned from the ground up, I knew nothing, had no training in PR at all. And now I think back and I can't even imagine doing anything else. It's so interesting that two of your pivotal moments that you just talked about were not when you were succeeding, when you were almost knocked down and not when you were getting up to climb and how that's shaped what you're doing. Earlier today, you mentioned that Richard Branson's book is one Mm. of your favorite books, and I'm forgetting the name of it. The Virgin Way. The Virgin Way. And how you admire that he talks a lot about his struggles or where he's been vulnerable. And is there anything you wish you had done differently? Yes, definitely. There have been several moments when I probably didn't say yes. And had I have done so, I would have been in a different position today. That said, I am so desperately grateful for Mm -hmm. the place that I am. And I, I am extremely happy with the job that I have, the company I work for, my family, you know, all of those things that I can't say that I wish I'd done anything different. But I do think I could have furthered the different experiences that I'd had, had I have said yes more. And actually, by coincidence, if you're asking me that, Richard Branson does write about that in his book. You know, he was called Dr. Yes, because he always said, yes, what's the question? That's a very brave thing to do by the way, 100% of the time. But um, I recommend the book. (laughs) Well, you've ended up in such an incredible place. You're working for Marriott International, which is one of the most innovative organizations in the entire world and definitely most influential within the travel industry. How are you seeing that brands are connecting? And now you have how many brands under? Marriott has 30. 30. And Mm under the organization? And how are you seeing brands today connecting with consumers and travel? Mm. You're at the forefront. You have the inside. You were part of the Starwood Marriott transition, Mm -hmm. and you've seen this from the ground up. So I'm just so interested to know what you're talking about in terms of brands and connectivity to consumers. Yeah. Well, if I start with the category of travel, first of all, I mean, Marriott is certainly very outspoken on the concept of welcoming all that they believe travel is a force for good. They, me, we all believe that travel is a force for good, that by virtue of traveling, either across the country or across the world, you're going to meet other people, have incredible experiences and take away so much that will help you to understand the world a little better, give you knowledge. And when we have knowledge, we're less afraid of things and also develop cultural understanding a little bit more. And that's why I'm especially grateful for the opportunities that I've had. Because I think when you don't understand or have any knowledge about something, it does become a little overwhelming. The world has become increasingly smaller because of organisations such as Marriott that really enable and facilitate a traveller to go have those experiences. So the travel piece is one piece that I think Marriott does very well. But what I think they are the best at is really pulling through their core values as an organisation. 
for all of us, we like to think that we work for an organization or run an organization that has firm core values, no matter what they are. I think uh, more and more as younger generations are coming into the workplace, we're definitely seeing the desire for them to work for a company that aligns with their personal values. And Marriott's start with the core family values that the Marriott family had and that those family values still exist today and members of the family, not least Mr. Bill Marriott, are still very active in the organisation. But then all the way through to finding ways to do the right thing for the public at large, for travellers as a whole. So if you think about Marriott's position on things that are very major world issues, they understand their role and they embrace the fact that they can drive change. They can drive change in terms of, you know, diversity and inclusion and multicultural acceptance and sustainability and then drive programs such as, you know, human trafficking training. The company has more than 750,000 associates that wear the name badge now for Marriott and 650,000 of them have now been trained and that number continues to grow. And so I think that's something for me that gives me enormous pride working for the company that I do. What's next? You know, I mean, to think that even if we were all listening to this, even 10 years ago and what we've accomplished in terms of connectivity and what social media has brought to all of us, travelers are now making decisions based on these core values. As you said, people are choosing to stay at a company based on these core values. How do we keep pace with that as we go into Gen Z and beyond? Mm. Well, I think, first of all, you have to appreciate the differences in people. And this isn't just a Marriott thing. This is for any of us in in our personal and our professional lives. goes back to really having an understanding and tolerance that people are different. And you don't need to travel to the other side of the world. You can go to the other side of your neighborhood Mm -hmm. and understand that your neighbors are not necessarily the same as you and that's okay. I think in terms of travel, what is next? The role of technology in travel, I think, is a big subject for discussion. I know that when we go back to welcoming all at the Marriott, if you think about we have extremely diverse collection of people welcoming an extremely diverse collection of people at our hotels every single day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The human touch is imperative in the hotel business. It's not going anywhere. Certainly, I don't believe technology can displace that. However, technology does have a role to make a more seamless, straightforward, simple travel experience for the consumer not just booking your room, but to have an entire travel experience. And so I think for the industry to define, you know, where are those touch points? What can we do? Certainly as a hotel company across the travel industry, though, what is our role to enable technology that better helps someone to get out there without fear, to have knowledge and education and have the ease of experiencing locales and and different cultures? It's such a double-edged sword and one that the travel industry in general is really towing when you you need to keep that personal touch, but you also need to keep up with technology. And the way Gen Z is going to check into a room or wants to check into a room is probably different than the way I want to check into a room. So Mm -hmm. it's really towing that line and 
think it's going to be really interesting to see where the role of technology, and I really hope that that human touch Oh, it can't go away. It cannot go away, no. And, And I think it's just that the roles change slightly. So if you think about what I said regarding something like human trafficking training, for example, if technology has enabled a faster, more seamless check-in process, that now frees those frontline employees to keep their eye on other things, right? To be able to be perceptive, to be able to read a customer. It's not always about things that aren't as positive. If you're there for a special occasion, but we don't know, it, but you're having a conversation and we can pick up on that, you know, pull those preferences from you. They're the things that I think we have an opportunity to get even better and develop service standards that are even higher. But no, humans, imperative. Humans can't go anywhere. No. <laughs> so we talked about what's next, but how can we travel better today? Mm. What can we do as travelers, as consumers to make our experience better? Or how do you see people traveling? If you were talking about the hotel piece in in particular, a couple of thoughts there. I mean, we're both hotel people. Yes. Yeah, it'd be a shame not to put that lens on it. The one common mistake I do think sometimes people make is searching for a hotel exclusively on price point. We all live by price points and budgets and, you know, what we spend needs to conform to the budget that we have totally. But there is so much choice now. If I just look at the range of brands that we have, 30, you know, the sliding scale of options for people is vast, even there from the super uber luxury experience all the way through to, you know, select service sort of budget economy stay where you're just jumping into a room, sleeping the night, having a shower and leaving in the morning, you know, and everything in between. I think it's really important to choose your hotel accommodations based on your personal style and what you you like and the trip purpose that you have. I will always look for a more beautiful full service hotel environment when I'm traveling with my family. That's something that we enjoy. As a business traveler, I am much happier with my light services and my laundry bag in the closet (laughs) that I can grab. So that's one thing. And I do think that with the personalization, it's not all about a hotel finding ways to suit your personal style. It starts with the selection you're making for yourself. And then separately, I do think if you travel with a hotel company or several, if they offer a loyalty program, sign up for it. It is free and you can collect points that then you can exchange, redeem for stays for other services. You know, at Marriott with our Bonvoy program, you can actually use points now to stay in homes and villas that we offer. You can use them to buy travel experiences. We offer 100,000 of those around the world. Tell us about a couple of the crazy ones off the top of your head or or a few different I know there's NCAA seats yeah, or yeah, yeah. concerts tell us about NCAA I know that there's different tournaments and yeah. the points as currency and being able to use them for access and experiences mm. that a consumer might not even be able to get 
Right. Otherwise. Right. What I love about the um, ways to use points as currency is that you can find things at every price point, point price point that you have. So you can buy into those once in a lifetime experiences. And we do host very exclusive concerts and acoustic sessions with performers, meet and greets with some of the biggest sporting celebrities that there are today. Attendance at events like March Madness, Men's Final Four, that you really wouldn't get if you did not have the points to bid to have those experiences. So they are sort of money can't buy options. But then all the way through to the lower sort of point totals for things like an experience with a tour guide in a particular destination that you're visiting or hot air ballooning or, you know, there's multiple different ways you can experience a destination. And now Marriott has 100,000 of these different travel experiences that you can purchase with points or, or with money. That's so cool. When I was listening to you talk, I was thinking, okay, maybe in my next life, I want to be a Bonvoy points curator. I want to come <laughs> up with all of those experiences. That sounds... I'm sure there's a whole team that does it, but it yeah. sounds like such a fun It really does. Job. <laughs> so you've have this career that you can be so proud of and you're so admired in the hotel industry, in the PR industry. What would 22-year-old Allison, what would you tell 22-year-old Allison rather today? If you could go back and say, tell the girl that was grating cheese in the kitchen or or maybe even before that, what would you tell her? Mm, I think it would fall into three categories. The first one would be travel. If you can, if you have the means or the opportunity or the time or all of the above, travel. And I don't think I've ever met anybody who didn't travel to experience something new or meet somebody new and have them come back and say, I wish I had not had that incredible experience. You know, it does make us richer, the good and the bad of it. It's all learning experiences for us. I had grandparents and parents who did not have the means to travel the world. And that is why at such a young age, I did start my world travels. And I'm so grateful that they encouraged me to do that. Secondly, I think I would suggest the notions of building great relationships, personal and professional. I think when you build great relationships with people over time, so you build trust. And when you build trust, you build equity and when you have equity, then you have a point of view that is heard. You can have a seat at the table. It doesn't have to be a boardroom table, any table. It could be my daughter's field hockey, mum's committee table, right? Whatever table is important for you to have a seat at. And it all starts with relationships and the trust that comes from that. So really think that through, you know, uh, we live in a very transactional community and people bounce in and out of our lives pretty quickly. But the people that I have the longest relationships with are the ones that truly understand me the best. And I would consider you one of those, Sarah. And our, and our relationship wasn't built over Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat. 
Snapchat or TikTok mm-hmm. or w- whatever it is. And Oh, and it's built over ups and downs, hard conversations, funny conversations, right? So Wins, true. losses, all of it that all matters. And then I think the third and final thing I would say is to anybody listening, uh, not just my 22-year-old self, but do something that you love, do something that you are good at and feels natural to you and do something that the world needs more of. And that may or may not be in the workplace, but something personal to you. If you believe the world needs a volunteer to go to a dog shelter and walk a dog or to help a neighbor with their groceries, whatever it is, or to start your own company to provide great services for someone, you know, make sure it's something that you love, that you're good at and that the world needs. That's great. I love that. I'm curious about this before we end. Do you have a favorite hotel in the world? I I not to put you on the spot with that and and maybe you have several, but I look to you as such a travel inspiration. So I'm curious if you have a hotel and maybe it's even one it's that really phenomenal memories are locked into or maybe it is one where the service has blown you away? Mm, I have three. Okay. And they're in different parts of the world. I have way more, but I, I'm going to shorten the list here a little bit and try not to make them all Ritz-Carlton's because that would be the easy answer, <laughs> 100 of those. Um, I think for me, um, there is a Ritz-Carlton in Bali, in Ubud. It's a Ritz-Carlton reserve and it's set in the middle of the island of Bali in, in the jungle. And it's one of the places that I have been. I went there alone for work, wished I had my family with me. It was a very special spiritual place and evokes a lot of emotion from you. It's located in the middle of a working rice paddy field and it is you have a truly indigenous experience when you're there. It's something else, very, very special part of the world. In Europe, I would say Ireland where my roots are. I'm um, you know formerly an O'Connor. In Dublin, there's a hotel called the Shelburne, and it's a very special, iconic property in the city of Dublin. And and I know that Ireland is a very popular escape for Americans. But if you haven't been to that city or or that particular hotel, I highly recommend it. A huge amount of character. And then back on on the home soil here of the Americas, um, this is a tough one. I'm actually going to add another one and say four because there is a Gaylord, which unexpectedly for me became a very special property. I was involved in the opening of that. Gaylords are very large hotels. Um, There's only four of them. And I didn't possibly imagine how a Gaylord philosophy was going to pull down to such detailed service and sense of camaraderie. But the Gaylord Rockies in Aurora, Colorado is near and dear to me. It's a very special place. And then I need to finish on a Ritz-Carlton and I'm going to upset a lot of Ritz Carlton (laughs) people probably. Um, You could choose any of them, but I have an emotional connection with the Ritz Carlton Dove Mountain in just outside of Tucson, Arizona. It's one of those places if you want to escape the world in a place that doesn't take you too long to get to and isn't too long of a drive from the airport, you literally feel like you have escaped everything, the craziness of everything. And it's a a very, very special place. So 
Hopefully. I, I love that eclectic list. It I was know. such a good mix. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Allison. We I can't wait to continue to see what you do because in the 10 years or so that I've known you, just watching what you've done in the industry, both travel and PR, and it's really been phenomenal. So I feel lucky to be on the ride with you. Oh, I'm fortunate for the partnership and the friendship. Thanks Me too. For having Thanks, me. Allison.